This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Hey, Sensitive Rebel. So yeah, we're uh, doing things a little bit backwards today. What do I mean? Well, Laura Tucker is my guest host. Who's she interviewing? Me. Laura and I connected a while back, and we had been talking about uh, doing a podcast swap, being on each other's podcasts. And then we decided we'd kind of take it to a whole other level. And what we did instead is have her interview me for my podcast. And I have also interviewed her for her podcast, which is called Free Your Inner Guru. And I really recommend checking out the podcast. It's one I enjoy a lot. And I think the direction that she's been taking it recently is great. So you can hear my interview of her on episode 93 of her podcast. Again, that's Free Your Inner Guru. And then in this conversation, Laura covered a whole bunch of different things talking to me, uh, both personal and professional. So it'll give you some insight into my background, what makes me tick and why I do what I do. And so if you've been wondering about those things, well, here are some answers for you. Hey, Steve. Hello, Laura. Welcome to your own podcast, The Sensitive Rebel. It's an odd experience to be here in this form, I have to say, but cool. Thanks for uh, playing along. This is a fun experience. It really is. I'm, I'm feeling actually very playful about this. And I know that you've already introduced me to your listeners in the intro. And mm-hmm. now I'm going to introduce you to your listeners. And then we're going to jump in and have a great big conversation. The idea behind this was to be asked questions that we always wish people would ask us because we ask people lots of questions when we interview on our own podcast so let's we're gonna have some fun with this so everyone yay introducing steve mccready building on his past experience as a psychotherapist and his, his extensive study of personal growth emotions and the human mind steve mccready now coaches sensitive rebels helping them get the clarity, courage, and confidence they need to break free of their self-limiting thoughts and actions so that they can do meaningful work that makes a difference in the world. In addition, Steve is the producer and host, as you know, of this podcast, The Sensitive Rebel, which features stories of the struggles and successes of sensitive rebels from around the world. When not working with clients or producing the podcast, you'll probably find Steve hanging out with his daughter and partner, whether it's turning moods into art in their home creative studio, making pizza, playing games, or exploring new places. So once again, welcome, Steve. Thank you. It's good to be here on my own podcast. I know, on your own podcast. And I would like to talk podcasts with you as well, but let's start about what may be the most interesting piece of this bio, and I'm teasing a little bit, but I want to hear about turning moods into art in your home creative studio. I didn't know you have a home creative studio beyond what I see on the podcast screen. Yes, indeed. So this is a thing that's a, it's emerged as a secondary hobby of sorts. So the first piece that's really relevant here is Tanya, my partner, she is a professional artist. That's what she does. And I, at times in my past have, I'll say dabbled in artwork and that dabbling has mostly been me in my impatient way, playing with it, going, oh, I'm no good at this. This is too hard. And then quitting. But I did at a period in my life, this is probably, I think around when I was 31 or so. So this was a period where I was really deep in my recovery work from an episode of major depression. And in the course of that time in my life, I got reintroduced, I'll say, to the work of Jackson Pollock, the abstract artist. 
And when I had seen it before, when I was younger, I was like, oh, that's interesting, but I wasn't particularly compelled by it one way or another. And uh, for those who aren't immediately connecting the name, his artwork is noted. It's like all the kind of splatter paintings and those sorts of things. And so that probably will connect the dots for people. But when I saw it again at that point in my life, my brain connected some things. And what I realized, I was like, wait a second, I know what this is. This is the noise in his head because uh, Jackson Pollock suffered from some pretty significant mental illness issues. Historically, we think now that it was probably bipolar Mm -hmm. disorder. And so when I looked at a lot of his art as a visual expression of the complexity of the feelings he was experiencing, something clicked for me and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And so I started playing with that. And for a period of about six months, I, in my garage, did a bunch of paintings of that nature, of that style, experimenting with like house paint and all kinds of different things. And it was just a fun experiment. And then one day I just stopped, like the energy about it was just gone, but it felt like I was processing something that I had not been able to process through my therapy work. And it was really powerful and cool. And then it was just gone. I was like, okay, whatever. And left that alone. Now jump forward 12 years or so. And relatively early in my relationship with my now partner, Tanya, we were talking about art and painting and I was referencing this and she's like, you should paint some more or whatever. And I was like, "Eh, I don't know. And just that, but started to play with it and got back into it and started doing again, different forms of abstract art. Cause that's what I do. And for anyone who's seeing this visually, the um, painting over my shoulder here is one of my own creations, but in doing so it was fun. And I, I just gave myself permission to play with it in just a very loose kind of experimental way without focusing on trying to produce an outcome or trying to create anything good. But I wanted to develop a practice of creating. And so I started doing that. And then I gave myself the challenge, a vulnerability challenge of sharing it. So I created an Instagram account and I started posting what I was making on the Instagram account. And people started following it. People were like, that's cool. That's interesting. And I was like, okay, that's neat. Started playing with different mediums. and, And then one day I posted something that I had painted and then I get a message maybe an hour and a half later from a friend of mine. And the message just says, how much? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, for the painting. And I'm like, you're kidding. He's like, no. So I gave him a number and he's like, sure. So that was how I became, I jokingly share this sometimes as here's how I accidentally became a professional artist. And so it's a thing I dabbled in on and off since then and, and do, but in our house, we have the neighborhood we live in. Most of the houses here have these cool little upstairs loft areas that are open and Part of why we bought this house was very specifically for this loft because it's this big open space. So it's perfect for Tanya to have all her studio space. And then there's an area that's for me and my daughter, for us to do creative stuff. I have some music gear and stuff up there too. So that whole upstairs is where all the fun creative things happen. And so we, we spend a fair amount of time up there, especially in the winter when it's cold mm. and dark and whatnot. Oh, that is, I, I love every, knowing every part of that. And I want to go to that Instagram account as soon as we're done. <laughs> yeah. So the Instagram account, and we put this in the notes too. So the Instagram account's called Limbic Visions. And it's got a bunch of other random stuff on it too. The older stuff is all art. I haven't posted a lot of art lately because I haven't been creating as much, but it's also got some of our pizza creations as well. <laughs> so it's a fun account, but there you can see some of the different work I've done in different mediums. Very and cool. Such. Well, shifting over to the other side of your professional life, how did you come to being? A psychotherapist. That was also a kind of outcome of um, this, you know, crisis point that I hit in my life of this episode of major depression and related things. And in that, 
I not only did some, um, not some, a lot of individual therapy, but I also through that got nudged into doing some career counseling because at that particular point in my life, I was working in IT and I'd done that for a number of years. And while I was good at it and while I enjoyed it from an intellectual standpoint, it was a fun intellectual challenge. The geeky part of me likes getting to play with cool technology and stuff that I would not normally otherwise have access to. But I found it to be emotionally very cold and unfulfilling and not very meaningful. A lot of the time, it just felt like what I used to call technology for technology's sake. And so that was very unsatisfying. And so I was looking for something else. I spent a good year wrestling with a bunch of self stories about I'm too old to change careers. I don't know anything else. I'm too old to go back to school. I can't do any of this. And by the way, at the time I was having that whole dilemma, I was like 29, oh, yeah. oh, That's a tricky age. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously yeah. too old. Way too and, except old. Except not. But the point though is I was really stuck in that story for a long time. And I and part of it's because I didn't see possibility. And that's where my therapist nudged me. She's like, why don't you go talk to this career counselor? Did some assessment and some things there. One of the ideas that came out of that was therapist, psychotherapy and that ties to some things because I was the one in high school everyone talked to when they were going through drama and stuff was going on and whatever. So I was that guy. That was my job amongst all my friends. But also the thing that stuck out is in my IT work, I always really enjoyed the piece of helping to empower people to understand and be more comfortable with the technology. They'd feel overwhelmed and distressed about it. My first IT job was working in a call center staffed by nurses. This was back in like 1996 or so. Most of them had never used a computer. So you can imagine they didn't, they were just overwhelmed and stressed. And I really, they really appreciated that. I was like, here's how this works. Give them a little bit and help that. But that empowering people, helping people feel more confident, more comfortable, that felt really good to me. And so when we connected those dots, and then I thought about the experience of being in a therapist office, this nice kind of quiet, calm space, not a lot of energy. I'm very much the introvert. I was like, this is interesting. And so as I explored further into it and started to understand what was there, it was like, oh, can I have my own business? I could do a private practice. That's something I'd wanted to do as far as having my own business since I was a teenager. There was a lot of things that fit. And then one day I opened up the newspaper and there's a uh, information session. There's an ad for an information session for a local school's uh, marriage and family therapist master's program. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go check this out. A sign from the universe thing. And I go to the information meeting, super cool, super interesting, and come home and start talking to my partner at the time about it. And I basically apparently just babbled for half an hour about how cool it was. Because at the end, she just looks at me and goes, you seem pretty excited about it. I guess you should do it. (laughs) So that was how it got started. But it was immediately, as soon as I started both the grad program, and again, I walk into you know class on the first day at 31 at that point, and I'm two thirds of the people in my cohort, or at least my age or older, so much for being too old to go back to school. But it was really interesting. I was like, the schoolwork was fascinating to me. It was such an interesting subject. So I was really into it there. And when I started actually doing work as a counselor and psychotherapist, it was like, this is really cool. It just really clicked. It fit me in so many different ways. And so I was really fired up by it and got myself licensed and then opened my private practice in 2006. And so it was like the first time in my life I felt, okay, now I'm actually doing work that I feel is meaningful, that matters, that's fulfilling. And that was a a very new and unique feeling to me at that point in my life journey. So I did the quick math and that was 15 years ago, 2006. And 
So now coming to present day, and there's a couple of directions that we could go here. I know from our conversation that you are, you're transitioning from psychotherapy to coaching. So I'm curious about that. And then in our pre-work, we're providing each other with questions that we wish that people would ask us. And one of them is to feel free to ask you what you're rebelling against. And I have a sense, and I, I'm not psychic, everyone, but I have a sense that they may be related. So what are you rebelling against? Yes. And if that ties into the shift from psychotherapy, I understand that your psychotherapy practice is still active, but the wanting to incorporate coaching into your toolbox or business model. I'm, I'm very curious about all of that. Sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. The way I would describe it at this point is the coaching is really, that's the direction that I'm much more focused and much more headed towards. The therapy is still there. I have a number of existing clients and those I'm going to continue to work with as long as that makes sense for them to do. I'm not going to kick them out or anything because I really actually enjoy my work with them. But so as for the question of what I'm rebelling against, I probably would have answered this in a slightly different way not long ago, but the way I would say it right now, and I've been thinking about this lately is what I'm rebelling against in a sense is I'm rebelling against the darkness of the world is the way I would actually say it currently, you know, and I'm <laughs> Laura's just making all yeah, these like the, the big, world. Big gestures, like, the, the, which is totally yeah. funny. But in all seriousness though, like we're in a time that has a lot of difficult things, a lot of challenging things. We've been through this year and a half of COVID. There's been the political struggles and all of that. And I've always been aware of and attuned to some of the, I'll say, darkness and difficulties of the world and have, through a lot of my life, been pulled down by it, I think. And one of the things with doing the work that I do is it gives me an opportunity to fight back against mm -hmm. it. And for me, the way that I'm fighting back against it is by helping others to fight back against it, by really empowering, supporting, encouraging them, because that's where I think I can best be of service in that way. And as that relates to coaching versus therapy is really about me being able to take that work and do it in a bigger, broader, more impactful way, because it allows me to start taking it to working with people who have businesses, who are doing things that are being a force for change, a force for going against the grain, but not just so much for the sake of that, but saying, hey, there's this problem or this injustice, this thing that isn't being dealt with in the way it should, let's find a different way. And so to me, that's what this world needs right now. And we need more of it. And the folks that are out there doing it, they need help. They need support. They need to know that they're not alone. And so for me, it's about me being able to help them be strong, be confident, figure out their path and navigate that journey so that they can really do the work that they're here to do. Thank you. Thank you for that. I wasn't doing that in just in terms of my big arm gestures. It felt big and heavy, but also very powerful. Almost everything you've said so far is reminding me why we've hit it off the way that we had have from the tech geek moments over the podcasts and cameras and all <laughs> and sound quality and everything to the, the past careers and technology, the threat of helping people through every stage. So it sounds to me like seeing the need and, and meeting it. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. and, and this could be uh, 
we won't spend too much time on this part, but I'm personally interested because of my own years as a coach and the transition that I'm making. I know there are professional guidelines for delineating between therapy and coaching. I would love to hear from you, given you're a qualified therapist, where you see, I've always felt coaching can be very therapeutic, but to be a professional coach, we have to be aware of what is the boundary on what we're doing now. And it can be murky territory. I would love to hear from you when you feel like you're crossing the threshold or walking in the middle of a Venn diagram. Yeah, it is a murky thing. And I don't know that there's an objective definition, but there's a few things that tend to come up for me. One way a lot of people will generalize it is that therapy is problem-oriented, whereas coaching is more possibility-oriented. And I think that there's some legitimacy to that that therapy is more past-oriented, coaching is more future-oriented. And I think that there's some reality to that too. For me, a lot of it is about really where is the person on their journey, right? And it is a space where they are, another way I've heard it said that maybe this actually captures it pretty well for me is therapy is about helping get somebody get from negative five to zero and coaching is helping them get from zero to five or five to 10 or 10 to 15. But a lot of the tools are very similar The difference is you're working with someone who is in a different space. And so what they need is different. What they can do is different and how you need to engage with them is different, right? Somebody who is in that negative five space, they may be much more emotionally and psychologically fragile. They may have a lot of, you know, limitations as a result of that, that need to be navigated carefully. It really changes how you can engage and work with them where you really need to be cautious and respectful of that so as not to harm them, those sorts of things. Whereas when you're working in a coaching capacity with someone, it's not that there aren't vulnerable or difficult moments, but there's a more of a core base of strength. And so you can engage with them in Mm. a little bit of a different fashion. So those are some of the ways in which I would differentiate them. But I think the reality is that there's a fair number of overlaps. And I will also say there are people who I think have specifically sought me out to do coaching because they recognize because of the background I come from with the psychotherapy training, that if things wander into that area, that's a thing I'm aware of and knowledgeable about. And I can do two things. One, either help them where it's appropriate or go, this is something you would actually be more appropriately served to work with a therapist on directly. Mm -hmm. And that may not be a thing I can do depending on who they are, our relationship and whatnot. Yeah, I've got something in my head and I know the school that I went to has, I'll have to dig it up because it would be actually a great podcast episode to do is like the difference between, between the two. And as the coach, I've always been very wary of, and the word coach has come to, to mean a whole lot of different things too. So I think we have to be cognizant wading into that, but more curiosity, coming from a a place of curiosity, which dovetails with possibility and is more question-oriented and less diagnostic or prescriptive. Like that's not that a therapist is necessarily prescribing, but when I say prescribing, I mean directing towards any soul Mm -hmm. outcome. Did your podcast name and the idea of the sensitive rebel come from your experience working with people who walk both sides of the equation? In a sense, yeah. I'd, 
the the first thing I'm going to take this opportunity. I've probably already done it in past episodes where I've talked about this a bit, but I'm going to take this opportunity to plug Seth Godin because if it wasn't for Seth's work, and for those who don't know, Laura and I both, even though we didn't actually meet each other in any of Seth's work, we both have a, that background in common, which is one of our another one of our kind of common points. But anyway, it was through my work in the marketing seminar that I actually came to this term. I had seen for years, a certain subset of clients. And I had noticed them first amongst people who were some of my, what I'll say, longer term therapy clients, people who came to me initially with, with something that was very clearly a therapeutic issue. But as we worked on that and they got through that, wanted to continue to work with me with a focus more on performance, more on up-leveling. And I started to see this common thing of these folks who really were called to do something to make a difference, to make an impact that they really saw and were focused on like this could or should be different, but really did struggle with that because that same attunement, it's a double-edged sword because part of why they see these things and are like, God, this is messed up. This needs to be changed. But that also means they're affected by that negativity or those problems. And they may also be somebody who is just a, someone with elevated sensitivity possibly a highly sensitive person in that sense, but not necessarily even that. And so I started to see these, this kind of commonality amongst some of these folks who came to see me and worked with me. So I saw it first amongst some of us, say my more advanced therapy clients, but then I started to think about this and I went, wait, if I conceptualize this as a journey for people, there are people who are further along that journey who have gotten through maybe, or didn't even maybe need the, the therapeutic piece, but are doing work and are wanting to do bigger work. And I want to go help mm-hmm. them. And that's what kind of drove the searching and stepping more into the, the coaching piece. This is all very reminiscent of um, Hero's Journey Speak. And, uh, and I know, and I'll bring the gendered conversation into the Hero's and Heroine's Journey. And both are out there, searchable online. It really, it does sound like people who are coming back from the journey to make the impact, right? Towards the end of that narrative, that's a couple of the the later stages of the hero's journey. I think you're right. I hadn't thought about it in that specific context, but now that you're bringing it up, I would say, yeah, I think that's a a fair way to Mm -hmm. characterize it. Mm -hmm. So now the sensitive rebel, if I was a sensitive rebel and I probably am, how would you, how, what would, What's that conversation like? What, so it's funny. I, I don't ask clients no. or, or potential clients what they're rebelling against, at least not yet, but I, probably, I might start. I don't know. It was, <laughs> that was a, a random thing that came. I know I wasn't even, that was a thing that came up almost as a throwaway question when I was thinking of questions for the podcast. I was like, oh, I could just ask people what they're rebelling against, but it started producing such great answers in the interviews. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> so I've stuck with it, but it is, it really is about me finding out like what's usually it's folks are stuck somewhere. There's some place where they're, they're trying to get further, but they can't necessarily. So they might be at a pivot point that they can't necessarily seem to get through. They might be at a, they're trying to take what they're doing and doing it at a higher or bigger level and not doing so. And so it's looking at that and going, okay, what's, where are you trying to go? What are the things that are getting in the way? And this is where we really start to look for what is it about specifically as it relates to the sensitivity Mm -hmm. piece. It's not, that's the only place we focus. But paying attention to that, because I see, and I see this increasingly in our world, that we live in such a noisy world 
that even people who aren't all that sensitive, you almost have to be insensitive mm-hmm. to tune out all that noise now because it's everywhere. I want to circle back to interject. Mm-hmm. When you're saying sensitive person, highly sensitive person, I've heard the phrase, and I know I've talked about it with a couple of my own guests, but it, it's sounding, I did a degree in psychology like back in the early, late 80s, early 90s. And I don't know if it's made its way into the psychology vernacular, but what, how is a, a highly sensitive person characterized? I get the empathy piece on that. How do we know? So this all ties to the work of Elaine Aaron. She's written extensively on this and she's the one who studied it and put this out into the world. There's not a formal diagnosis in a like DSM sort of sense, but what we're talking about is people who are more strongly affected by various sorts of stimuli than the average person. And it does seem that the sensitivity can vary. So you might be, you might see someone who is particularly sensitive to environmental stimuli. Like they, if the room is too bright, they're really bothered by that. Or if there's too much noise, they're really bothered by that or smells or things of that nature. And of course, this is like any sense the attunement to it exists on a continuum for people. But for some people, it is significant enough that it can really impair their day-to-day functioning in certain aspects of the world. And until they learn how to set up and structure their world to protect against that, the world can be a very draining and exhausting place. In the context of HSP, that's really how sensitivity is referred to. I also factor in it's, I often use the word attunement as an alternative, because that's really what I think of it is a really broad sense is there's just this increased awareness, right? If we were to geek out for it for a second, if we were talking about say microphones okay, <laughs> from a podcasting yeah. standpoint, a more sensitive microphone is going to pick up quieter sounds. It's going to pick up more subtle nuances between sounds and those sorts of things. And that's the way that I think of it is that there's that greater attunement. And the problem with that is it can just mm. overwhelm you with data. You can get in more input the same way that a more sensitive microphone can more easily be overloaded. And does this reflect your own journey? You mentioned you know, your major episode. Does this factor in and sure. how it, you came to, just like the people you're serving, how you came to realize this is where I want to have my impact. I see this. I feel this. There's an element of it. Yes. I wouldn't like, I wouldn't characterize myself as an HSP. I've done some of the mm-hmm. assessments and stuff, and I don't really hit that criteria. I have some elevated sensitivity in other areas where it's not, but like, I am definitely more sensitive to like light. I'm more sensitive to, to smell and to sound than the average person, but other things like, I know some people are really super sensitive around things like fabric or physical sorts of things. And I'm like, eh. but for me, it's more, my sensitivity is more emotional sensitivity. It's more a, like, it's a, there's very much an empath thing to it. I, even as a child, my mom used to comment on this. I would pick up on people's energy and I would always say something to her about it. I was like, that person seems like this or that. And she was like, it was really weird. You were really perceptive of people and I didn't know why. And we could argue any number of things. I suspect there's an element of that that's just genetic. There's the experiential piece that I grew up in a home where there was alcoholism and a very common byproduct of growing up in that sort of home is you develop an enhanced awareness to your environment because it becomes a survival skill to know when somebody's been drinking to adjust how you're engaging accordingly. The alcoholism I grew up around was not violent. It was neglectful, but it was still one of those things of when you're six years old and mom's passed out on the couch and and passed out on the couch with a lit cigarette, you're like, okay, I need to deal with this. 
and you need to be watching for the signs that mom's drinking again. So that's probably a piece of it too. So it's in most of these things, the whole nature nurture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. debate, which goes on all the time. My answer to that is always both. And I think sometimes what happens is we get the double dose. Like I suspect genetically, I'm probably more inclined that way. And then experientially, I had some things that enhance that. How does that help you as a therapist and now a coach? I think it allows me to, on a number of levels, one, it allows me to pick up on some things that might not necessarily be obvious. But two, I think it allows me to be able to bring some compassion and empathy and understanding of what my clients might be experiencing that other people don't. I'll say this is especially true as an example in the work that I do with men. I don't work specifically exclusively with men. They make up a fair amount of my practice at any given time, but a lot of them are guys who have wrestled with the fact that they are more emotionally engaged, more emotionally attuned. Like I saw I saw the movie Coda last was it last week, two couple weeks ago. And fabulous movie, very emotionally intense, and I'm I was like crying through half the movie. And I'm at this point in my life, I'm like, whatever. Yeah, I was. So what? But when I was a kid, I would have been so horribly embarrassed mm-hmm. about that. Like I was 12 when, so this is again, aging myself, but I was 12 when like Star Trek two, and this is from the original Star Trek movies came out. So Star Trek two, the wrath of Khan, great movie. Everyone go see it. If you don't know it, best Star Trek movie, I still think, but in it and oh, spoiler alert, Spock dies. Okay. I've seen this movie a dozen times. Every time he dies, I'm still going to cry. I know it. And I remember when I was in sixth grade seeing this movie and being so embarrassed that made me like, it was so horrible, right? Oh my God, what's wrong with me? And a lot of my clients have related similar experiences to that and how they've struggled with it and how it has been a problem. But the other problem is when they tune that out or block it, that causes all kinds of secondary problems. And the other part is that attunement is a real gift and real strength for them. And so my own wrestling with it, my own struggles with it, I think helped me to be able to help them figure out how do we use this? How do you take care of yourself so it doesn't overwhelm you? And how do you use it? Because it's a gift that you have that not Mm -hmm. everyone does. I wonder if it's, um, I'm simultaneously thinking about how sad it makes me to think about how there's so much pressure on boys and men to not emote. And, and even I grew up with a pretty stoic, my dad's side of the family, very kind of stoic European, I'm peasant background, literally peasant, not. And so the work, it it was all about the work and the worth is in the work. They're very loving, but not emotional. And so I can also probably a highly sensitive person empathize with that experience and just looking at that challenge is universal as well, because a lot of women in order to be, and I think we're, I think it's like of a certain age. I, I can't remember if we've compared ages or not, but I'm pretty sure I was 12 or older when the Wrath of Khan came out. But the pressure going through the whole, not so much when I was a teacher, but in corporate life, which is where I had my, a lot of, I was carrying my challenges with depression along through my very frustrated shortened career as a teacher into the corporate environment. And with that pressure, I was very passionate about any work that I had done. And you almost get groomed into thinking, feeling, behaving like a man to be successful. 
Right. That's where acceptance lies Each, in, in that world, or at least it did back then. I, I think that's absolutely true. We have, as a society, such an unhealthy relationship with feelings and emotions as a whole. And every person, every gender gets their own baggage around that. It's just the rules are different about what emotions you can or can't feel, what you can or can't express, and how you can or can't express them. And the unfortunate thing is all it does is just create a lot of chaos and trouble and get in the way because when we get back to it, feelings are data, they're information, a little weird and confusing and convoluted, but they are, that's what they are. And if we're blocking them out or distorting them, it's really not a great way to, to be able to optimize or maximize what we're doing, right? When we're cutting off this data stream or, or jacking with it instead of trying to take it in and understand it. But a lot of it's very uncomfortable and scary because we can't always disconnect what we're feeling and what we're doing. They are separate things, but not everyone thinks of them as separate or believes them to be separate or recognizes that. And I think that's where we get into trying to manage our actions by controlling what we let ourselves feel. And that doesn't work. And conversely, waiting to feel a certain way in order to take the action. Yeah, that's like a very right? good point. Exactly. The same thing. I'll exercise when I feel better. No, you'll feel better yeah. when you exercise. Sorry. That's actually a great segue yeah. you've given me because I saw... I think it was an Instagram post recently where you were showing like, and you were explaining why you're showing pictures of yourself exercising. Tell me a little right. bit about that. Yeah. There's a couple parts to that. One is it's a little bit of a, so another thing I'm rebelling against is the uh, sanitized, sterilized image that is there on Instagram. And that a lot of people I think feel pressured, right. To put out there on Instagram. And I think that's, I don't know who that's serving, but I'm pretty sure it's not serving any of us, any of us individuals who are trying to be our best selves and trying to have a better relationship with ourselves. And so part of it's about, Hey, not every picture of me is going to be, look at me looking all nice and polished. It's like, here's me looking sweaty and whatever in my garage. So that's a part of it. But part of it is also about really thinking about that. These things are a process, right? Growth is a process. We have to take action. We have to do hard work. And that's an essential part of it, but that's the part that gets left out. I recently interviewed someone for my podcast who is someone who also talks about this, about that he likes to call the dark side of entrepreneurship. And somebody just gets ignored. It's there's hard work here. There's uncomfortable times and it's not as pretty, but it's every bit an essential part of the journey. And I think a lot of people think there's, there's gotta be some way to shortcut it. And there's no lack of people willing to sell you a shortcut or an alleged shortcut. Well, that's what I'm rebelling against. <laughs> I, I know. I was like, I, I know this one's going to get Laura going probably because yeah, there are no shortcuts really. Mm -hmm. And so we have to, if we want to really help people, we have to give them an accurate picture of things. And part of that is here's the messy, difficult stuff. Here's me at five in the morning in my garage working out sweating because that's how I prepare myself to be able to go do the other things mm -hmm. I need to do today. I'm going to take note of that because one of the things that I've been looking at on very much like you, I have two different properties, the one that's more, you know, personal and, and not that free or inner guru is any less personal, it's different aspects of myself. And that side is a little over curated. It's very content driven because it's driven by the podcast. So there's a bit of necessity in that. But I got to tell you, and I don't know if you can relate to this or not, like I feel less pressure now to show up camera ready for any single thing anything 
part of it is induced by the pandemic. My version of camera mm-hmm. ready is significantly more casual, fewer pairs of pants, obviously, but also like even getting ready now for what we were doing. I was like, yeah, whatever to the mate, like bare minimum makeup, bare minimum <laughs> anything, because it's like on one hand, it's just yeah. like showing up some days in these last 18 months is a miracle. And on the other hand, is that really what's important here? Do I need to go get all done up to put myself out there or communicate with people who want to hear from me? Like it's, it's ridiculous. It's one of those things that it conveys a certain air, right? If we're looking polished, conveys an air of competence or togetherness or all of that. But we all know that doesn't make it so. And it's not actually what matters. It's the same thing. You can see people who have a whole bunch of training or certifications or whatever, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're good at the Mm -hmm. work. doesn't mean they're not. They might very well be, but it's not the end all be all. But some people get so caught up in that as if it's, here's how you show this. And it's like, no, you show that you're these things by doing them, by doing the work. And at the end of the day for us, yeah, it's not about like how we look. It's about how we engage with people and how we connect. Yeah, it's the humanity. Right. No one cares how I look. People care if I'm present for them, if I'm engaged with them, if I care about where they are, what they dream and what they want to do. And I show that I, one, believe in them and two, want to support them in getting there. That's what they care about. They do not care what kind of shirt I'm wearing. I've tested this over the last year and a half. (laughs) (laughs) What's the shirt they care the least about? (laughs) Any. My point is, as long as I'm wearing a shirt, probably wouldn't go well if I wasn't wearing one. I think that might be a little weird, kind of awkward, but, but right. But it's, that's one of the things I started testing. I'm like, is anyone going to care if I, because I used to always like as a therapy rule, right? Or as in with coaching clients too, I'd be like, I got to wear a button down shirt Mm. with collar. And then last year I started testing. I'm like, it's Friday. I'm going to wear a t-shirt. Like no one said anything. Yeah. Because again, it doesn't, that's not what determines whether or not I'm serving you because I'm not here to be looking good for you. I'm here to help you and how you think and how you engage with the world and what you do. And that has nothing to do with what I'm wearing or what anyone else is wearing. So how convenient for us both that the podcasts are primarily an audio experience, <laughs> right? <laughs> which I'm curious to know. Committing to a podcast is a significant commitment. And I I know if it was similar to you, (laughs) you probably knew that going in and then found out it was 10 times more of a commitment if it mirrored my experience at all. So I'm really curious because you're sticking with it and, and what, why podcasting and what is it about this platform that works for you? So I jokingly, part of me wants to say right now, so I can make it all look polished and perfect, which is such, would be of course, such a juxtaposition in contrast to what we were just talking about, but that's actually not really why. So there's a number of things here that go into this for me. Number one, part of it's a background issue. One of the various things I've done along the way on my journey is I did work in radio for a few years. I had the the good fortune to uh, work for a 50,000 watt alternative FM radio station back in New England, back in the very late eighties, very early nineties during actually a pretty good era of music too. So that was very cool. I did that for a while. It was fun. I enjoyed the, the broadcasting piece of it. I enjoyed the music, getting to see some amazing shows, getting to see things like Nirvana when no one knew who they were and they were just playing in some dinky club. 
I didn't enjoy the music industry people in all honesty. And it was like, I thought about a career in radio and I was like, eh, no, I don't think that's the right world for me, but I've always liked that stuff. And I've got the IT background. And so all the techie aspects of podcasting are cool and fun to me. It's a chance to play with gadgets and feel justified about it. And podcasts are one of those mediums that like when I discovered them, spoke to me. I have a lot of memories of listening to radio in the evening or other things, or like listening to the radio with my dad in the car and stuff. So it's just, it's got, but I, I like the energy and the vibe of it. There's something about that that's there. And so I had wanted to do a podcast for a number of years. I did one a long time ago. I did one for 10 episodes and then abandoned it and it had been like, I want to do another one. I want to do another one. Wasn't sure what to do it on. It was never a priority. Various things happen in life and finally got to the point. It was actually a COVID thing. So I had before COVID started, I had started again, back to Seth and Akimbo there. I started the podcast workshop with the idea of, okay, now I'm going to finally do this. And I was getting it ready. And I was literally like at the point where I was just about to start sending out requests to people to see if they'd come on to be interviewed. And then COVID hit and it was just chaos. It was all the initial COVID mm -hmm. chaos. And I was like, I'm just overwhelmed. I can't deal. And so I, I basically shelved it and put it back, put it on hold and was like, whatever. And then early this year, when the podcast workshop came back around, I saw it. I was like, well, eh, I don't know. Things are still crazy. I don't know if I'm going to do it. But I went back and read my notes and remembered what it was. Cause I'd finally come up with an idea about what to do with the podcast. Like, okay. This is an opportunity for me to give people a chance to tell their stories about how they've been mm. challenged, how they've struggled, how they've fallen down, how they've gotten up and how they've figured out a way to go forward, which I think is a really cool thing. And I was, I realized, oh wait, this is an opportunity for me to help people one, share their stories so I can give a platform for them to get their message out there, but two, so other people can hear those stories. Mm. Because one of the things I have seen so much with a lot of the people that I work with is they often feel isolated and alone. They often don't know that others have these challenges and these struggles. They think I'm the only one. There's maybe some shame around it or other things. And so it was a way of, no, let's put this out there. Let's be like, no, these people exist. You're not the only one. You're not even close. There's a bunch of them and a range too. And so it was like, cool. Okay. And I had you know done a lot of prep, like I had said, COVID hit, no. And then when I went back and I reviewed my notes when the workshop came around again this year, and in reviewing my notes, it was really like I was reading it going, oh, wow, that's right. That's, and it really hit me like how much I felt compelled by the idea of it and the mission. And I was like, okay, this isn't just, I want to do this. This is, I need to do this, especially informed by the last year and seeing how many people had died and all the difficulty around COVID and all of that and being aware of, because I had turned 50 during that year. And so there's this mindfulness of I'm getting older and it's, what am I waiting for? Why am I waiting for this? If I'm going to do this, I need to do it. And so just was really compelled at that point that it's time to do it. What I didn't realize is that my background in therapy and coaching also works pretty well for being a podcaster because it puts me in a position to be able to ask people thoughtful questions, to be able to engage in an attentive and listening way. And I think that ends up being a strength in, in the interviewing. I didn't realize that until I started getting into it, but yeah. there it is. Yeah. That curiosity and not so much that has to be what I find is not that so much that has to be that open-ended question. It's about creating the space for someone else to, to inhabit. One of the things that somebody said to me, actually just earlier today, I was talking to them. They're like, one of the things that seems different about your podcast is it seems like you give people more space to answer. 
and you don't cut them off. And I'm like, yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's obviously my work self showing up in there. But it's also, I find that when I get out of the way, people go interesting places. What you said about the space to inhabit, as I've been doing this over the course of the last several years, it becomes more about that, I think, than, than anything else. It depends on the intention of the podcast and what its function is, because that's important too. But I can see it. I can see, and I've enjoyed listening to the episodes of yours that I have. What are your favorite podcasts these days? What do you listen to? As a podcaster, you have less time to listen. As a podcaster, like I, I sadly right now, I'm like, I don't spend that much time listening to, to podcasts in depth, which I'm bummed about. I've been doing so much other stuff. So this is going to sound really ridiculous to everybody listening. And I'm just like pandering to Laura, but I, I and but Laura knows this. I've already said, I've, I've very much been enjoying your podcast of late. I think where you've been taking it is one, such an important topic, but I think that you handle these topics in a really thoughtful and sensitive way and really find the right balance of bringing yourself into it, but giving enough yeah. space for your guests. And so that's, it's one I enjoy both from the standpoint of this is interesting stuff, but then as a podcaster, as listening from a, what are things I can look at and adopt for a silent approach? There's pieces there too. So I appreciate that one on, on a couple of levels. Let's see. So I'm a fan of, of again, Seth, no surprise. I'm a fan of his, is akimbo. Mm -hmm podcast because he gets into and explores interesting things in bite-sized chunks. So that's fun. I love both of Brene Brown's podcasts. I'm a huge fan of Brene and her work. It was when I discovered her work, it was just not really mind-blowing. It was not because there was nothing in the ideas that she was sharing that was so much new, but the way that she combined mm -hmm. them and the form in which she presents them makes this stuff so much more accessible and digestible. And I think the work that she's done is great. Another one that a lot of people probably don't know about is Tara Brock. And she has, it's really actually not so much a podcast formally in that it's just, they record the weekly talks that she gives at the meditation center in DC that, you know, where she's involved with. But the thing with Tara, and this is why I think everyone should listen to them, is Tara is this really wonderful mix of, she is, she's a PhD. She knows the science of this stuff. She's very spiritual. She's got her, her Buddhist background. She brings great stories into her conversations and she's just downright funny. And it's, so it's this really cool mix. And I find that there's some things I've taken from some of her talks that are packaged in a way that has allowed those things to get through either to me or to, to clients that the same concepts packaged in a different way hasn't. So that's one that I think is cool. The other one that I'll say is Dak Shepard's armchair expert is fun. I think it's a mixed bag because on the one hand, I'm like, Dak, shut up. You're interrupting too much. And at the same time, I've heard him get things out of his guests that I've never heard in any other interview or conversation with those people. And it's because of the way I think he engages them conversationally. So it's like, on the one hand, I'm like, okay, I get, I get it. Because like his episode where he interviews Bill Gates is amazing. Because it's like Bill Gates suddenly seems like just this casual, easygoing dude. And you're like, wait, that's Bill Gates? What? So that's one that I enjoy. And thank you for bringing my attention back to Tara Brack. I used to listen. I haven't tuned in for a very long time. And uh, it sounds like that might be a place for me to return. I have... Yeah. A few of her episodes that I've saved that I have on occasion gone back and re-listened to because either the ideas are really powerful and resonant for me that I need to revisit sometimes, 
or because I've known I've had cases where I've, I've told a dozen clients, you need to listen to this episode of this podcast. And because it's got this concept that's just illustrated in such a powerful way. And I think really for anyone who just really wrestles with getting overwhelmed with their feelings and getting just stuck and lost in their feelings at times in whatever form it takes her work and her talks, there's some really powerful ideas that she has that I think can help with that tremendously. The other thing I wanted to ask you, especially since you shared your radio background during such a cool time of music and Mm -hmm. is your favorite band or singer or solo artist. I want to know about your music taste. There's a lot of things I don't have a favorite (laughs) for. So I'll share a few, I'll share a few things. So from that era, first off, from the era of working in radio, like I was working in radio when the Depeche Mode album Violator came out. And that is absolutely my favorite Depeche Mode album. It's one of my favorite albums. And I listened to it that whole summer when it came out. And even so many years later, I still really like that album. And so if I look at like of that era of the late 80s, early 90s, alternative era, Depeche Mode, The Cure, that sort of stuff, like that's my thing there. On the other hand, I also really like some music that's a lot more into some obscure, some not so obscure. A lot of electronic music's pretty obscure, like stuff like things like Tangerine Dream, the from and really any era, but like 70s era Tangerine Dream, which is this very obscure sort of cool electronic music. I like lots of that stuff. And then at the same time, if I look at someone like contemporary, there's a singer-songwriter who I don't know how many people are familiar with William Fitzsimmons and his work, but I'm going to put a plug in for him because he's he's got a beautiful voice, great guitar player, and it's just, I really love his music. And so for me, it's like a whole range of stuff. There's a little bit of everything and it just depends on my mood because I also went through this period when I was when I was a kid in high school, I was way into like heavy metal and like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and my my wall was covered <laughs> with posters. And maybe this will illustrate it best. I think this was in 2012. In August of 2012, in a one-month period, I saw two concerts. One of them was Iron Maiden, which was super fun, even at that later point in my life. The other one was Dead Can Dance, who anyone in who doesn't know their music, I encourage you to check it out. It is, it's very different than heavy metal. <laughs> and it's amazing. It's amazing. Both of the the musicians men are just, they're just amazing. And a lot of people will know Lisa Gerard's voice because there are things that there are like soundtrack things and stuff that she's been on, I believe. So some people will recognize her voice, I suspect. Well, that is so cool. And especially like our entire relationship has grown from podcasting, which is auditory. So it seems so fitting to bring that in as well. Right. I love music. It just the thing I'll, I'll, I want to say also on that is I, I think music is actually a super powerful thing. So I'm glad you brought it up. It's it's a topic I haven't got into a lot on the podcast, but maybe I should talk more about it. But because I use music very much as a mood management tool for me, I have playlists for certain situations. Like I have a playlist. It's literally, it's called Everything's Okay that I built when I was going through a particularly challenging and dark period. And to get music that just helped to uplift me and help me to feel better. I mean, it's just this, and it's, so it has this whole vibe of it's going to be fine. It's going to be all right. And it's, if anytime I listen to it, I'm just like, just calming. And so I have different ones. I have ones for, you know, while I'm busy sweating on my bike, taking pictures of me for Instagram, I've got a different playlist that I'm listening to. That's much more high energy music. And I think it's a really powerful thing actually. And I think that would be a good example of how we can take our environment and structure our environment in a way that really facilitates uh, mood, certain types mm-hmm. of action. I listen to different kinds of music while I'm trying to work. So it's a great topic. I could geek out, geek out about music for 
hours. That's great because we've opened up that category for you here on The Sensitive Rebel. And yeah. uh, and also, I love how it circles back around to what we spoke about earlier about the nature-nurture environment is so incredibly powerful. And so yes. it's like this constant, for me, it, it occurs that this constant dance between living from inside of myself and curating what's on the outside because there's this reciprocal and always constant relationship between the two. I think a lot of folks maybe are not as aware as they might be about how much environment and being really conscious about your environment and what environment you create and what environments you put yourself in about how important that is. I've known this for a long time about myself, but it's huge. And I remember like when I first opened my private practice, I spent the whole, like I spent a month or a month and a half furniture shopping and getting it all figured out and whatever. And I remember though, when I got everything and I got it all set up and it was ready. And I remember the first day I was in there, I was just like, I have, it was so amazing. And it just felt so mm-hmm. good because it was like this space that I had created for me and for my clients. And it's, it was the first time I'd ever been in a workspace where I was like, uh, as opposed to what I'd worked in cubicle cities when I like worked for Sprint and other companies, it was just like this, just noise and chaos and sterile. Ugh. So environment. Can, can I share something that listeners who might become interested in this subject area? And this is the second time this week that I've spoken about this book. It, uh, when I, this is going back to those nineties days, but the most influential course I did in my, in my science degree at U of T was called environmental psychology. And it was this major setup mm-hmm. for a lot of the rest of my life, including the coaching. And the, one of the books on there was the death and life of American cities by Jane Jacobs, who happened to be a Torontonian, which is where I live. And it's a whole exploration of city life and the influence and impact of city planning, environment. I need to order, I've I've either given away or lost my copy years ago, but I need to get it in and give it another look because she was, she's deceased now, but she was like generations ahead of the times and walking around Toronto here and probably in some other places, there's things like t-shirts to protest some of the horrendous city planning that are like, what would Jane Jacobs say? And yeah, so there's somebody wow. who the big impact, big, and it's not that big a book either. It's a, I remember it as a very reasonable read that turned the lights on in so many different ways. It's fascinating on multiple levels. One, it's just like, that sounds really cool, but that's, I think it gets into the, again, that topic of environment. It reminds me like one of the favorite courses I took in college was a course called the automobile in American life. I would love that. And it was a it's fascinating. It was an American studies course and it really talked about how all these aspects of American society were altered by the vehicle, by the automobile, by its increasing rise to prominence, right? Whether everything from about how roads were created and structured, about how businesses existed, about how home architecture changed, how garages got moved around to the front of the house, how they got bigger and all of that. And so it's it's really fascinating when you start to see the interdependency, but all this again comes back to yeah, environment matters a lot. And a lot of the time, I don't think we think about it. I try and be really deliberate about it in where I work, where I spend my time. This is one of the reasons why I often will walk when I'm doing calls with clients, because 
I can put myself in an environment that's a nice, comfortable environment and be mm -hmm. moving, which helps me a lot too. So I, I, those sorts of things are, they make a big difference more than I think a lot of people yeah. recognize. And I, I feel like a pull to bring that into like our current environment, which is so challenged, so restricted in some ways we're coming off. It's been different in different um, regions, but still very much dealing with the pandemic and our environment has been very altered our physical environment as well as our intellectual and ev every environment really whether it's auditory relationships physical personal you name it but but just a, a and how important the little shifts are in the bigger picture you feel like you were talking about highly sensitive and overwhelmed and feeling out of control earlier i've found even the smallest shifts of environment can have surprisingly large impact, which I hope is a hopeful thing. It's, there's a lot of power there because if you know that and you're conscious of it, it means you have tremendous ability to shift your mood, your frame of mind, your energy, right? So that's the cool thing. Now, of course, if you're in a situation where you can't control your environment, that can be problematic. And if you're in a situation where you're not aware of it, you may put yourself in a place that's really impactful to you in a negative way without realizing it. And I think I, because I wasn't aware of that for a long time, often spent time in environments that weren't a good fit for me because I just didn't really understand the connection. I think for a long time, now I do, and I'm much more mindful of it. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's a really important thing to, to be aware of for all of us. And I ask clients that all the time. I'm like, where do you feel calm? Where do you feel at peace? Where do you feel these different things? And a lot of them have never even thought mm. about it, never even thought about it. But once they do and they see it, it's suddenly it's another lever that they can move to help manage themselves, which is very powerful. Steve, my goodness, what a pleasure. This has been, it's been fun. It's been easy, I'm going to say, to just sit and flow. Yeah. So thank you for that. Right. I like it. <laughs> and uh, Of course. And yeah. No, there's, there's so many things here too. Like we could do five or six no. different episodes on all these different topics. A lot of them would have nothing to do with either of our podcasts, but we'd have fun. <laughs> yeah. And everything to do with the podcast as well. Like it's, we are who we are, wherever we go, I think. But. Oh no, that's yeah. Wherever you go, oh, there yeah. you are. And that, that's so true. That's so true. And. I think some people think about that like it's a bad thing, but I would argue it is like so many things. There's just a lot of potential there. And I think if we're willing to recognize who we are and to figure out where it is strong or where it serves, and that allows us to, again, be a force for positive impact in the world, which the world could use a little positive impact these days. That feels like a beautiful place to land and wrap up. Thank you so much for having me on as a guest interviewer. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for playing along with the idea. This is, uh, this is super fun and it's fun for me to get a chance to be on the other side of the, of the microphone and it gives a chance for the listeners to hear some different things. So it's totally super fun. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can get show notes, information about my coaching services, or just send me a note at sensitiverebel.com. Until next time, keep moving forward.